Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3. We're continuing to move along in this section, this conversation, this dialogue between our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Nicodemus. Before we read the text, let's just look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I'm reminded what you said to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Oh Lord, you know. Father, you know that our condition such that we are dead in trespasses and sin. Apart from your Spirit, who breathes life into us that we may be born again, I thank you, Lord God, that I have received that new birth from you. Not because of anything that I have done, just because of your mercy to me. Thank you. I know that your children who are in this place, Lord, that They as well lift their hearts before you. And Lord, we just say to you, you alone are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. I pray that, Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, that Holy Spirit, you would say to them, Arise. And they would believe. Lord, we look to you. We trust in you. Bless us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me in John chapter 3. Let's read again verses 1 to 15. We'll make a few mentions of things we've already seen in the text by way of review. And then we'll continue in the story, this unfolding dialogue. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Note that again. He's a Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a ruler of the Jews. This is the man who comes to Jesus. He comes by night in the quiet of the day, seeking out an interview with Christ. He says to him, Rabbi, and we made a lot of this statement last week. This is the initial declaration of the Sanhedrin concerning who Jesus is, and Jesus, of course, is going to confront it and say, no, this is insufficient. I'm not just a man come from God, I am God. He's going to attack this assertion through the rest of the epistle, but they say, we know, and by the way, think with me about this, this only increases their guilt. I mean, at the very beginning, the onset of his ministry These 70 men, the leaders of Israel, who have examined what he is doing against the Scripture, have said, we know you are a teacher, come from God. They try to kill him. They know this. We know you're a teacher, come from God. No one can do these miracles that you do. This is the part that is insufficient unless God is with him. 
Jesus can say, no, not, God is not just with me, I am God. Nevertheless, Jesus bounces over. He uses their declaration as a stepping stone to confronting this religious man with his need. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mom's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And we looked at that last week, that explanation of what that means. And we went to Ezekiel 36, which Nicodemus is a man who is an expert in the Torah, would have known initially and immediately what Jesus is referring to here when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be sprinkled with clean water in Ezekiel 36, and you must receive a new spirit, a new heart. That flesh or that that spirit of stone, that heart of stone is taken away. It is is replaced with the Spirit of God. And so Nicodemus knows exactly the portion of Scripture that Jesus is referring to when he mentions this. When Jesus is explaining what it means to be born again. And then his next statement, Jesus is going deeper into the text and he's going to Ezekiel chapter 37 that Dave read to us today. The spirit, the wind, the spirit blows over those dry bones where he wills, where he wills. And what does he say? You hear its sound. Oh, Nicodemus remembers Ezekiel 37, because as Ezekiel is prophesying to the dry bones, ye bones, hear the word of the Lord. All of a sudden, what happens? It says in the text, he hears a rattling. As bone comes to bone, and all of a sudden they stand up a great army, and then God breathes into them the breath of life. But he hears it. And immediately, when Nicodemus hears the Lord say these words, he is reminded of that prophecy of Ezekiel 37 you hear his sound. The work of the Holy Spirit in reviving the dry bones in the valley of dry bones. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it leads. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says to him, how can this be? How can this be? How can this come into existence? That's the word to be, the verb to be means to be in existence. How can this, this new birth, come into existence? Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive what I am testifying. 
If I have told you of earthly things and you won't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That statement is attacking their assertion. Jesus makes a statement similar to that later in the book of John. And by that time, the leaders of the Jewish people are so incensed against him, they hear him say that. They know it is a reference to the book of Daniel, the Son of Man coming in glory in the clouds. And they want to kill him. No one has ascended into heaven except you descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must, notice that, early in his ministry, Jesus is once again announcing what is going to happen by necessity. He must be lifted up in order that whoever believes in him can receive eternal life. Now, last week we dissected the text a bit. We made mention of the fact that there are a series of questions that Nicodemus asks. Jesus replies to the questions with three truly, truly statements. Remember that? Truly, truly. The Greek word is amen. simply speaks of a solemn declaration. A solemn declaration it is a way of saying this is, this is true, this is reality. Now there again, I mentioned last week, anything that God says, anything that Jesus says is true. But Jesus is making a solemn declaration here. And he says, truly. But he doesn't just do it one time. He repeats it. In all the other Gospels, Jesus makes some truly statements. But in John's Gospel, John records to us the the, the small clutch of times when Jesus says to somebody, truly, amen, amen. Amen, amen. Unless a man is born again, he cannot perceive the kingdom of God. Amen, amen. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Amen, amen. We testify to what we have seen. And you do not receive our testimony. And so there are these three declarations. Now, last week, I told you what I've been thinking and praying about as we go through this. First of all, that God uses the study to bring salvation to some restless heart. My prayer is that as we understand what it means to be born again and how to be born again, that somebody who may not have ever been born again is, that the Holy Spirit says, arise, that says to them, like Lazarus, who is in the grave, Lazarus, come forth, and that in the preaching of this word and in the understanding of what it means to be a born again, God brings salvation to a restless heart. I'm also praying that God uses this study to bring a solid sense of assurance to some wrestling believer, because I know there are people out there who are just like I was, 
who for 20 years of my life, you know, every time I went to bed at night, I'd pray the prayer again, in case I didn't mean it right the last time I prayed that prayer, or I didn't say it right, or whatever the case may be, or because I screwed up again. And I thought, oh, I sinned again. I wonder if I'm still in the book, you know. And I struggled with my assurance. God doesn't want us to go through life struggling with an assurance. In 1 John chapter 5, in verse 13, the scripture says this, These things I have written to you who have believed on the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. God wants you to know. God doesn't want you to be like a storm-tossed sea. He wants to give you assurance. Your assurance will never be found in looking to yourself. It will only be found in resting in what God has said and what he has done. The third thing that I am praying for is that God uses the study to equip his church, us, us who know the Lord, who get really sleepy in Zion, you know, who, who don't do what we should do, who don't share the faith we should the way we should. That as we come to grips again with the gospel and what it means and, and how it works and how it operates, that we are more active in sharing the gospel with others. And so to do that, I want to begin today by talking about a guy. His name is Charles Spurgeon. Ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? I'm sure you have. He's a great preacher, a remarkable man. I read some things about his life this week that are kind of actually astounding. Now, you probably know some things about him. By the way, he is holding a stogie there. You see it? Now, I'm not saying that so that you uh, go out and buy a cigar. You know, don't, don't do the Rush Limbaugh thing. But he did smoke his cigars. He liked his cigars. And uh, it was a different day and an age. Uh, you know, that's just who he was. You know, I'm not going to ever say tobacco is the greatest sin in all the book. It's not. But it sure may put you in an early grave. You know, so, you know, and Spurgeon, by the way, died at the ripe old age of 57. Um, he didn't live to be a grand old man. And there's probably some reasons. Anyway, let's talk about him. He, this guy, he was saved, came to know the Lord when he was 16 years old. He, like many of you in this room, was raised in a Christian family, heard the word preached, knew the gospel, and yet his heart was like a storm-tossed sea, and he struggled with sin, and he didn't know the Lord. When he was 16, he was converted. I'll tell you the story of his conversion at the close, so don't leave. However, think about this. This guy was saved when he was 16. Anybody want to put out a guess when he took his first church and went into the pastorate? Later that year. Later that year. He was 16 years old when he took his first church. He had no theological training. None. When he was 19, 
he took the new Park Street Chapel, which later became the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he stayed there and ministered there for 38 years until his death. Remarkable man. Now, here's the thing about his ministry that I didn't know. I've read a lot about Spurgeon, but I didn't know this. This was intriguing to me. He pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle for 38 years. In that time, the church added to its membership. We just had a membership class today, and we had quite a few people there because we had a bunch of teenagers there. We've added a lot of people in the years. In the 38 years of his ministry, this man added to his church 14,000 members. This isn't a day before mass media like internet and radio. His sermons were published in all the newspapers. He never preached with a microphone, ever. 14,000 members. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If you went to a church today in America, that would be called a megachurch, wouldn't it? A megachurch. You went to a megachurch in America today, and you looked up, and you looked at the, the way that church, the components of it. You would probably find that a large percentage of the people in that church came to that church from another church, right? If we did a survey here today, we would find that most people who are members of this church came here from another church. Charles Spurgeon added 14,000 members of which roughly 11,000 of them were people that were converted in his services. Amen. Now think of that. If you had over the span of those 38 years just 4,000 conversions, that would require you every Sunday for 38 years to baptize two people every Sunday for 38 years. And he had almost three times that. That is astounding. That is remarkable. Now, add to it this. Charles Spurgeon was a man who did not believe in what we would call easy believism. He would not dunk a person just because they came forward in a service or they held up a hand. In fact, he would not dunk a person until they had first gone through discipleship classes and had proven themselves to be a true believer. He called any other person, he used to call them unhatched chickens. <laughs> and he says, I will not bear, you know, baptize an unhatched chick. So to be baptized by Spurgeon was a rigorous thing. 
and he baptized about 11,000. And we say, why? How? How can this be? What was it about this man that enabled God to use him in such a way that he saw that kind of remarkable working of God's Spirit through his ministry? First thing I'd say is this. Number one, it was God's sovereign hand. It just was. The Spirit blows where he wills. You see his hand, you see his work, you hear it. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. To some degree, with every other thing that we talk about for just a minute, there is a truth that it was God's sovereign hand at work in 19th century England in London through the ministry of Spurgeon that enabled him to see that kind of fruit in the preaching of God's word. It's amazing. So God's sovereign hand. God's spirit was so much on this guy. He, he was going to preach at the Surrey Gardens in London once. You've probably heard this story. Before he went to preach at the Surrey Gardens, whenever he would preach someone, he would go there first to test the acoustics because he didn't have a microphone. So he goes into the Surrey Gardens and he steps up onto the stage and he just says in his preacher voice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It resonated well. He got down and went his way. There was a man up in the lattice work of the building who heard that and repented and was saved. About 20 years later, he sought Spurgeon out And he said to him, do you remember the day when you went into the Surrey Gardens and you stood on the stage and you said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he said, I was up in the lattice work that day. And at that moment, I was born again. That's God's sovereign hand. Second thing that I would say is this. This guy was a man who had a simple message that was centered on the gospel. I don't mean by that that he was superficial. He was not. He was very deep doctrinally. And he taught all of God's word, but he always announced and proclaimed the simple message of the gospel in a way that people could understand it. One of the reasons he did so was because of what he experienced as a youth. He was raised in churches, and he heard the gospel all his life. And he said of this later, he said this in a sermon, he said, though I dearly venerate those men that occupied those pulpits, I am bound to say I never once heard them preach the gospel. I mean by that, they preached truth. They preached great truths to their congregations, spiritually-minded people. And then he says this, but what I wanted to know, what I wanted to know was how can I have my sin forgiven? And they never told me that. 
They never told me. And he never forgot that. So Spurgeon's ministry was centered on this. If you want to have your sin forgiven, here's how it happens. We'll look at that a little later in the message. But this is how it happens. And Spurgeon made that very clear so people could understand it. So even though God, even though, you know, Spurgeon, I don't got time to talk about Spurgeon all day today, but even though, I mean, he's like a fire-breathing Calvinist. I mean, he really was. One of the biggest controversies of his ministry was over the Armenian Calvinistic debate. And he was a rock-solid Calvinist. But although he was a Calvinist, he knew how to share the gospel so people understood it and were saved. And as a part of that, I would say this, and this is the other thing that was true of Spurgeon, and it's this. It's the last one, then we'll move into the text. Expectancy. Spurgeon believed that God would honor his word and that if he preached the gospel, God would save people. And he expected it. He expected it. And because he expected it and because he had faith, God blessed that. Spurgeon truly believed, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God. Spurgeon would say, if the gospel is the power of God, then how could it be impotent? He expected God to work, and God did. He did so out of a sense of faith and expectancy. Have you ever been in a situation where someone was saved and you didn't expect it? I remember once this guy, him and his wife, visited this church. This is years ago. This is decades ago. In fact, he's gone home to be with the Lord. He was a businessman in Star Valley. They came to church, and I went to visit them. And I sat down with them, and I was there in their place of business. And, and, and she knew the Lord, and she, she wanted me to share the gospel with her husband. So I, I went through the gospel, and I shared it with him. And I tried to make it as clear as I could. And we got to the end of it. And I said, do you understand that? And he said, yeah. I I said, have you ever done that? He said, no. I said, would you like to do that? And he said, yeah, I would. And I said, you would? (laughs) I mean, I was like, you would? Really? I was shocked. And I said something about my faith. God will bless his word. And God will bless the message of Christ if we proclaim him. We plant, we water. God causes the seed to grow. Now let's jump into the text for a few minutes. How can this be? Now, there are three points I want to make real quick, and then we'll sum this up. How can this happen? This is what Nicodemus says. Okay, if i got to be born again, how can it happen? Number one, it is by the ascended one's descent. It took the incarnation. We see that in the text. Secondly, it is by the descended one's lifting up. And then thirdly, it is by the snake-bitten sinner looking in faith. That is how it happens. You want to know how to have your sins forgiven? 
This is what has to happen. Number one, by the ascended one's descent. Did you notice that in the text when we read it? There's no one who is ascended, but the one who descended. Now, this is another way of saying what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who was in the form of God. But he did not think it's something to be held on to, to be equal with God. What did he do? He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. The ascended one descended from his throne. In humiliation, he came to live among us as a man. In order for us to be saved, in order for us to be born again, the first thing that had to happen was for the Son of God to leave heaven's splendor and to come to earth and to walk with us in this sin-stained earth. The ascended one became man. Now, when we think about the ascended one, I want us to just think about that phrase for a minute. When we think about ascending here, it is literally talking about the one who is sitting upon the throne. And the way I know that is for the way it is used in Isaiah chapter 14 when it talks about Satan's desire. Do you remember Satan? He was the son of the morning. He was a created angel by God. He had special privilege in the presence of God, and yet he looked upon that in some way, in a lustful way, and he wants to steal the glory that alone belongs to God. And it says of him, it says this, He said, I shall ascend to heaven. I will be above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. And what did Jesus say? He didn't even get close. No one has ascended. No one has sat on that throne except the one who descended. And that is me. Jesus Christ. So, in order to be born again, the first thing that had to happen was the incarnation. The second thing is this. In order for us to be born again, the descended one, this one who came in the likeness of man, who is made in every way just like we are except for sin, he is 100% God and he is 100% man. For us to be saved, the next thing that had to happen was he had to be lifted up. Now what does that mean? Does that just mean that's like when we worship and we lift him up? Is that what he's talking about here? To lift him up, to make him big, to make him glorious? No, what is he saying? Unless I be lifted up on a cross, on a tree, unless I bear your sin, unless I, the one alone who is ascended, who is sat on the throne of the universe, unless I descend and then I am cursed on a tree, In order for us to be saved, in order for us to be forgiven, the second thing that had to happen is this. Jesus Christ had to bear our sin debt. Now, this comes out in many different scriptures. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes a big deal out of what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? How? He was made 
accursed in our place. For it is written in Deuteronomy 20.23, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, it's important to note here, God is very precise in what he says. He does not say, cursed is everyone who is hanged from a tree. He's not talking about being lynched, like by the neck. The Jews didn't lynch people. Jews never executed people by hanging them by their neck. Most times when the Jews executed people, they did so by what? Stoning. But there is a provision in the law to hang someone not on a tree, but from a tree. Or excuse me, not from a tree, but on a tree. Got to get my words right. On a tree. Now, the original way to hang somebody on a tree was what? Sharpen a spike and impale them. That's what the Ninevites did. That was the original way they did it. They hung them on a tree. They sharpened a spike, and if you were a cursed malefactor, they impaled you. It was a gruesome death, and it was prolonged. But it was only prolonged by how heavy you were, because the heavy you, you wanted to be a heavy guy at that moment, because you went quickly. If you were a light guy, you might linger for a while. The Romans take it to the next degree, hanging someone on a tree, because they felt like impalement was too easy and went too quickly. They learned a gruesome way of hanging someone on a tree they called crucifixion. So it's not hanging from a tree. It is hanging on a tree. And Jesus is lifted up, cursed for us. Keep that in your mind and go with me quickly to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, I want you to notice what it says. Jesus explains what he means here. In verse 32, he says, I... I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this not to show how we worship him. He is so high and lifted up. No, what? He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? He said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Walk while you have the light. Go back to John chapter 3. For us to be saved, number one, Jesus had to come in the incarnation. Number two, Jesus had to die bearing our sin. Number three is this, by the snake-bitten sinner looking in faith. Now notice with me the verse in verse 14. As Moses in the wilderness lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That anyone who believes on him might what? Be forgiven, have eternal life. Now think about what happened in Numbers 21. They come to Mount Hor, 
by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people become impatient because of the journey. Boy, have we ever seen that before. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we are sick and tired of this dumb manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them, and many Israelites died. So the people come to Moses. They say, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take these snakes away from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, notice this, make a snake and put it on a pole. It's really interesting. In 2 Kings, Hezekiah, that's, that, this snake on a pole was still in Israel during the reign of Hezekiah. It was called Nehushtan, and the people of Israel are actually offering sacrifice to it. It's interesting. And Hezekiah breaks it in pieces. It's interesting to read that, but they kept this thing for a long time. It stayed around. You can do your own research on that one later. But he says to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. When anyone is bitten and they look at it, he will ha- what will happen? He'll get better. So Moses made a bronze snake. Notice this bronze. That's why in 2 Kings, Nehushtan, this image that Hezekiah destroys, was the word Nehushtan means bronze snake. He makes a bronze or a copper snake. He puts it on a pole. And he must have announced to everybody, if you get bitten by a snake, and you look at the bronze snake you'll get better. Now, I bet for a long time here, people have been looking for an antidote. I bet there's been a lot of witch's brews and herbal remedies. I bet there's been a lot of people poking holes in snake bites and sucking out venom. But everybody that's gotten bitten by a snake has died. And somebody's going to tell you, if you get bit by that snake, don't do anything. Don't try to deal with it yourself. Go and look at the snake on the pole, and you'll get better. To do that would take what? Faith. Now, I would also suggest to you, this ties into what's said earlier, that the testimony of people who it worked for would be pretty powerful. Don't you think? Because if you got bit by the snake and you went into the center of the, the, the crowd, and you went there, and you looked at that snake, and you trusted in it, and you believed in it, and you lived, and you got better. Do you think the next time you saw somebody that got bit by the snake, you would say, oh, go home and, and just put on some, some aromatic herbs, and just put a tourniquet? Do you think you would say that? What do you think you would say? 
I got bit by a snake. And I went into the, into the center of the camp. And I looked up at that snake and I trusted in it. And I am here to tell you, I got better. Do you think that person would listen to you? They may or they may not, but I'd say there's a lot more chances that the more people that were healed and more people who were saying what happened to them, the more people would respond. Now, as we bring this together and we close, I think it's interesting. Why a snake on a pole? You know, why would he say put a snake on a pole? Well, yeah, they were getting bit by snakes, but why put a snake on the pole? Well, this is all pointing to Christ. But why would you think of Christ on a pole when you think about the Messiah on a tree? Why? Well, you've got to go to Genesis, right? What brought in sin? The snake. So when Jesus is hanging on a tree, what is he bearing? The bite of the snake. The sin of the snake. He is our sin bearer. He's not up there as the ascended glorious God. He is up there as the what? The cursed snake. Bearing our sin. That's why there's a snake on a pole. And that's why that's important when we think about the, te- the context. It's interesting how this became a symbol for healing. I-, I mean, think about how many symbols of healing are out there with a snake on a pole. It's interesting, if you Google it, don't do it while I'm doing it, and you talk about it, you will see most of them are tied to a counterfeit of Satan who don't want us to know why this is true. It's called the cult of Asclepius, which was a Greek god. But you know, the cult of Asclepius is actually a thousand years later than Moses. Moses predates it. Moses found names. So even, I mean, think about this. Now, we all love the World Health Organization, and we all trust it, right? <laughs> Amen. I'm waiting for the next thing to come out of there. But what's on their emblem? The World Health Organization, which is very anti-God, even adopted that snake as a symbol. Oh, let's go back to Spurgeon and we'll quit. It's time to close. Young Spurgeon, 16 years old, raised in a Christian home, Sunday evening. He's going to go to church. He's just been in his room where he has been agonizing in prayer before the throne, wanting to know his sin was forgiven. As he starts on his way to the church in Colchester, a blizzard blows in. And rather than going all the way to the church in Colchester, he stops at a primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. He goes in and he sits down. Because of the blizzard, the pastor didn't even make it that evening. The guys in the congregation kind of look around at each other, and one of them says, Tag, you're it. So one of the guys gets up, and he opens to a text. And this is what Spurgeon says happened. He recalled it in a sermon in March 1861. He told his church about it. 
he said, blessed be God for that poor local preacher. He read his text. It was all he could do. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He was an ignorant man. Now, he doesn't mean that like he's speaking disparagingly. Remember, this is Victorian English. He's just, he was untrained. He was an ignorant man. He couldn't even say much. He was obliged to keep to his text. Thank God for that. He began. Look, that's not hard work. You don't even need to lift your hand. You don't even need to lift your finger. Look, any old fool can do that. It doesn't need to be a wise man to look. A child can do it. It don't need to be a fool grown to use your eyes. Look. A poor man can do it. No need of riches to look. Just look. How simple. And then he went on. Look unto me. Don't look to yourselves. Look to me. That is Christ. Do not look to God the Father to know whether you are elected or not. You'll find that out later. Look to me. Look to you, who, to he who has called you. And then he went on and he put it in this simple way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood for you. Look unto me. I am scourged and I am spit upon. I am nailed to the cross. I die. I am buried. I rise and I ascend. I am pleading before the Father's throne. And all of that is for you. Look! Now that simple way of putting the gospel had enlisted my attention. And a ray of light had poured into my heart. When stooping down, he looked under the balcony and he said, You young man, you are very miserable. And so I was. But I wasn't accustomed to having people speak to me like that. Ah, said he, and you will always be miserable if you don't do what my text tells you. And that is look to Christ. And then he called out with all his might, young man, look. In God's name, look. And look now. Look. 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 You have nothing to do but look and live. And I did. Then and there. And he who but a minute ago had been near unto despair, suddenly had joy and hope. My friend, all you got to do is look. Look and live. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the way that you worked in the life of Charles Spurgeon to save him and then to use him. And Lord, I pray that as we 
looked at ourselves today that we might understand our condition? I pray that you would help us to look away from ourselves and to look unto Christ and to trust Him. I pray that if there's someone here today that has not yet responded to the gospel or somebody that is listening on the radio or somebody that's watching online, that, Father, your Holy Spirit would seek them out and speak to them in a way that they would look and they would live. And we trust you and we expect you, Father, to work. In Jesus' name.